You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Alrighty, welcome back to the Stateside Podcast. Today we have a very special guest, and now a shared colleague of mine, John Pantel. He's a, a booking agent and an all-around music industry veteran. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks, James. Totally stoked about this. Uh, I've listened to a bunch of the podcasts, and it's an honor to be in the mix. It's, it's strange to be thought of as somebody within the entertainment industry, but... Uh, knowing you and knowing Shapiro, knowing a lot of the other faces within this business, uh, there are so many podcasts that come from the perspective of I was starting out, I didn't like the way the business was, and I wanted to do something grassroots or punk rock or do it yourself or create your own machine. And it's funny to see that disruptive innovation becoming the norm so it's great to be a part of it and great to be one of the people on your podcast thank you yeah i appreciate the kind words and that's something i I was thinking about that this morning how you know i i've been around music my whole life similar to most people i grew up playing in a band i toured a lot in a band i played drums so i i have my background in that way but I haven't been working as a full-timer in the music industry, meaning I'm getting my full-time paycheck, I'm paying my bills, my mortgage through the music industry. This is relatively new for me. I, you know, Stateside was a side hustle. I was working as a structural inspector at an Intel campus here in Oregon for, for years while building this producer management company. And so anyway, I was thinking about people like Shapiro, people like you, People like Matt and Tim, who have been doing this for some of you guys for decades. And I guess I hope Shapiro and gang appreciate how great of a life this is. I think everybody definitely does. I Uh, hope so. One of the great things about meeting up with everyone and finding out that we all left bigger companies, bigger agencies with three initials on the same day. And hearing their philosophy, it is important to understand the large machine, but you don't need to be a part of the big machine. You need to understand how everything works, but you can create your own path. You should learn about the mistakes that were made prior to you. You should know about the potential mistakes that could happen in front of you, but you are not obliged to follow in a path anyway and that i really liked i really liked the spirit the camaraderie the we're going to do this ourselves strategy coming from guys 
who had all been in the business for multiple decades, who had all known every different department and decided, you know, we can create our own world. We can create our own entity and we are not beholden to following what other agencies in the past have done. So it's been great to work with them. And I think that mentality helped them tremendously over uh, COVID times. It's it saved everybody's bacon. Yeah, I think you're right. It's a funny time for me to get to know Dave, Matt, and Tim after that COVID break, the Thanos switch <laughs> that happened in the world mm-hmm. and everything just stopped. Yes. You know, and those guys are, they're owners of the business and they took a hit for the betterment of the company and for their employees. And it's something as a business owner now, and you know, those three guys are co-owners of Stateside along with me. And it's something that I have to grapple with too. You know, if, if something like that happens again, and unfortunately it very likely might in our lifetime, then it's something that you got to prepare yourself for. Um, but I think, I think to your point of like holding on to like learning that this is a real industry because it is, you know, I just, I just went to Nam recently and it was a good reminder that this is an actual industry with real professionals who actually give a shit about their job. It's not, it's not people just fucking off and avoiding responsibility despite what you know, maybe my family might think I do, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a good, it's, it's, it's empowering. Like you said that you don't have to, you don't have to follow the machine. You don't have to follow the big three letter agencies way of doing things. And in my case, a, a management company, I can do whatever the fuck I want. We can do whatever the hell we want. However we want to do it. There are rules to learn. And then there are rules to break and there's time to carve your own path. It is single-handedly my favorite thing about Sound Talent Group and everyone that works there is that you guys all just kind of put your fingers up and you're like, fuck you. Like, this is this is what we're doing. We're doing our own thing. We're clearly good at it. Our clients can speak on our behalf about that. And that's great. True. It feels like a mix between uh, capitalists, artists, and Marxists. It's a group of people who, in their first year, they got nominated for Best Global Boutique Agency. That's huge. And not only did that show us in our first year that an agency that does not have a set roster, that does not have a set genre that we're going after. We have artists in the hip-hop world, in the pop world, in the rock world, in the punk world, in the Latin world, in the J-pop world, in the K-pop world, and so many different, and sports, so many different areas. It, it, it showed me that we've got a great mentality of people that are focused on individualism, but also focused on camaraderie, that we see everyone has the ability to create their own future. And I think given that the management company, that the record company, that the podcast company came out during COVID time shows the temerity of everyone on the team. We're not going to lie down. We're not going to accept that our business is at a standstill. We are going to continually find disruptive and innovative technologies that will help our artists, that will help our clients, that will help our entities and build us forward. And I think having that has made for a much better existence. 
I've worked for a number of different agencies. I've worked for the IOC. Uh, I worked for chain of nightclubs. I was expected to learn and to get to a point where I could be a master of my craft, but also not beholden to any theories or presumptions that I did not agree with. And with STG, I found that place to be. It's beautiful. It is a gift. Back to my comment about I hope everyone knows how lucky we are. I, I, I didn't say that in like <laughs> accusing Matt, Dave, and Tim that they don't know. I think it's just a good reminder that like, I'll give you an example. I woke up today when I wanted to wake up, right? No, there, there is no time card for us. There, no one gives a shit when you start, as long as you no. do, you do your job. I had some calls uh, in the later part of the morning, so I got up, you know, a little before nine, which is exceptionally late for most day job people. I, I felt this sense of burden for the day. I was like, I have all these calls, and I have to do this, and I have a pile of emails and some producer agreements, and they're like some legal shit we're dealing with. It's, it's stressful. And, I, you know, I had a podcast in the middle of the day and I, I found myself kind of complaining to myself about the burden of my day and something I, I was thumbing through Instagram, kind of a corny, like self-helpy guy came across my search history or whatever. It was like he was talking to me. He said something about along the lines of like when you wake up in the morning and your eyes first open, that's that's such a gift. <laughs> like You've already won. You, you're already winning. You woke up you're alive and to have the audacity to complain about the things you have to do for the day is insane it's it's insane for most people let alone for us i i am not breaking concrete i'm not like standing outside in the the oregon rain all day on a construction site i'm not digging a hole somewhere i i'm drinking starbucks and talking to musicians and managers and people in the raddest industry in the world all day long and i get paid to do it it's amazing. We're pretty lucky. Pretty, We're pretty lucky. lucky. The other side of it is that our job may never be done in terms of Oh yeah. I'll I'll have to work Christmas Eve or Christmas Day on my phone making sure that a tour admin goes out. Uh, you know, if you work international, you have to be cognizant of the vacations that occur in Argentina and Mexico and Japan and other places and not everybody you know, holds December 20th through January 5th in such high regard. So you'll have to do stuff all the time. It really becomes a thing that the hours of your job are so flexible that in order for me, at least, in order to do it effectively, it has to be confluent with my life. It has to be confluent with what I want to do because I'm dealing with it all the time, every day. I'm checking my emails and checking, you know, right when I wake up to go over stuff every night, I'm checking everything to make sure, okay, does everyone have what they need? Are we prepared? Is there any fires? That's, you know, that's just the norm. I was uh, getting my master's during COVID and I remember some professors being very specific about the work-life relationship and how we need to separate from work. And one of the interesting things I said to the professor was, hey, what happens if you have a job like mine where you're kind of on call all the time? And that's that's the reality. And it really stumped her. She didn't know what to do with it. But I think the, the end result that she said was, well, then you'd really better like what you do. And it's been great 
to have the clients that I have. And if my clients and I aren't on the same page, we have very direct discussions about it saying, you know, let's figure out how we make your life better. Let's figure out how we can build successes together. And if we can't do it, then we just walk away. I mean, I'm sure you know this as agencies, as music agencies, there's not very many times you have written contracts with your artists. I actively detest written contracts. I felt that they were one-sided. I felt that, you know, they would pels an artist to give X percent of money, but it only entices the agent. The agent's company needs to give best efforts. Well, come on. We've all been in situations with best efforts. What you want is to have a scenario in which you're educating your artists, your managers, your team enough to the point where they do not feel like they need an agent. They feel like they want a supporter. They feel like they want somebody with intellect. They feel they want somebody with experience. And in turn, there's a greater form of communication. There's a greater depth and discussion. And the agent and the artist or the manager, they end up becoming advocates for one another. And they end up understanding each other better. And it's been great so far. So I've been very lucky. 30 years in the business and I'm stoked. I wake up every morning. I woke up at five o'clock today just excited for working. I just love it. It's, it's strange. It's, it's thinking of it as work is a very odd thing. Because if, you, if you're building with all of your, your clients, then it's kind of everybody moving forward together. So it kind of like sometimes I see it as an educator and sometimes I see myself as a cheerleader. And, and sometimes I see myself as a, as a creator, so to speak, like helping the artist create their market, creating from my background as a manager, from my background as a musician, from my background as a talent buyer, having to bend it. In this many areas, I think I heard on Dave Shapiro's podcast that he thought of himself as an entrepreneur. I tend to think of myself more as a teacher in terms of presenting the ideas and, and what's been learned and then creating new solutions to some of the problems that we all have. It's amazing. I, I want to pivot back a little bit. Let's Let's rewind a bit on your bio. Um, most of our audience has some idea of who you are and what you do. Uh, but if you could kind of give the the few minute elevator pitch on your bio, some of the, sure. the positions you've held in the industry, that'd be helpful. So I started out going to high school. I grew up in Anaheim, went to a lot of Anaheim is in Southern California. At that time, Orange County had about 10 million people in it and it, it, it around the vicinity of it and we were the uh little brother to los angeles county we were considered a bedroom community when i was growing up there were very few venues there were no radio stations it wasn't considered hip this was before real housewives of orange county this was before the oc Orange County was considered kind of like a death knell for art, that you were never going to get signed, you were never going to be on a label, you were never going to make it unless you moved to Los Angeles. The big dream for everyone who lived in Orange County was they could do it themselves. 
And I grew up with the people in No Doubt. And I grew up with a lot of the people in Social Distortion. And I grew up with Sublime. And I grew up with No Doubt. And, and I grew up with a lot of these people all carrying these dreams and trying to find where we could have punk rock shows and where we could do places to play. And I played in some ska bands and just tried to find how I could expand the congregation for the artists that I grew up with, for the artists that I knew. I managed a band called Real Big Fish for a while. I managed a band called St. Ferris for a while. I played in a ska band called The Knuckle Brothers. And we started renting out hotel ballrooms in Anaheim to put on concerts. At the time we started doing this, in 1993, 94, 95, there were no venues in Orange County that were smaller and that people could dance at. Every concert venue in Orange County was a sit-down place. This was before House of Blues, Anaheim opened up. I was a bellman at a hotel and I got very lucky because I knew all the other hotels. I was known as John from the Quality Inn and I knew the people at the end at the park and I knew the people at the Quality Inn. And what I would do is if there was an off day that was two or three months down the road and they had a hotel ballroom that was empty, I would rent it from them and I would put on concerts and I would have my band play and I would have other local bands play and we would just put everything together and we could go through the hotels and put on shows because hotels were the only places that had all ages dance permits because Orange County was so conservative. So I started putting on all these concerts and I got hit up by House of Blues. And they found out about me and they found out what I was doing. So I got hired by House of Blues in 1996. And they said, you know, you're doing great things as a promoter. Why don't you come here and work? So I started out, I started as an assistant and then I became a talent buyer. And then I ran one venue and I ran two venues and I ran three venues. Then I started running a concert division there. And I was just very lucky. I worked there for five years. Then I left the company and started booking concert events, going back to uh, booking mainstream events. I ran nightclubs in Utah and Arizona. I put together uh, three venues for the Salt Lake City Winter Olympics. So I worked with the IOC, put together a lot of events at these different venues as well as Orange County. Then uh, a band I really appreciated came to me. Uh, it was a band called Cafe Tacuba, a very big alternative rock band in Mexico. And I had a meeting with their manager and the manager said that they were very unhappy with the status of agencies in the United States. They felt that being at a Latin only agency or being on a Latin roster really hurt the prospects for the group. Although the group was at a major agency that had all these different divisions, they felt that being on the Latin roster within that agency disqualified them from different opportunities. They felt that they were pigeonholed. They felt that they were always going to be speaking in one language rather than speaking in all sorts of languages. So they asked me to become their agent and I didn't necessarily want to become an agent, but a couple people that I really respected came to me and I, I kind of got forced in. Uh, it wasn't necessarily gunpoint, <laughs> but it was pretty direct. So this artist, great artist, we want you to find us an agent. Okay, 
we want you to be the agent, John. Well, no, you know, it's not really for me, but I will help you find an agency. So I started interviewing for them on their behalf with other agents. And there were a lot of agents I really respected. And they said, yeah, we'd love to have them. They're a great band. Do you want to be the agent? I said, no, I don't want to be the agent. I just want to put them in good hands. And I figure you would understand it. And all, almost all these agents were like, we kind of understand it, but we would need somebody like you to end up handling it. So I finally had one meeting with a company called the Agency Group. They were at the time one of the top five agencies in the business. And I sat down with the head guy at the company. His name was Steve Martin. And they kind of suckered me into going. They, the, the people that I talked to at the agency were like, yeah, we're going to end up doing this. Come on over. We'll have lunch and we'll go over everything. I'm like, great. Finish my job. I went over there, go to have lunch with them. They locked me in a room with Steve Martin, who's the head guy of the whole agency. And he's very, very good at what he does. And he's sitting there with the lights off and he's sitting there smoking a cigarette indoors. So that shows how old this thing is. Yeah. He's sitting there smoking and he's like, hey, John, hey, why don't you want to be uh, uh, an agent? Why don't you want to be an agent? I don't get it. And I said, well, it, it's not really for me. I, uh, you know, I don't really like it. I don't really like that side of it. So Steve sits there and he says, you like me? You like working with me, right? You like me. Okay, so you like me, you know I'm an agent, right? Okay, so this is all in your head. So why don't you just do the opposite of whatever you have in your head as the bad agent? Just do the opposite of that and call yourself whatever you want. You wanna call yourself sailor boy, you wanna call yourself captain, you wanna call yourself doctor, you wanna call yourself whatever you wanna call yourself, inspector panel, who cares? Just do it, just do it, just do <laughs> the opposite of whatever you have in your head as a bad agent. And then that's it. And then if you have questions, you just come to us and it'll be fine. If they believe in you, then you got it. All you have to do is not screw this up. Like, okay. So I went with some of the guys from that agency and we went to Mexico. And at this point, I'm still trying not to be an agent. I'm still like, you know, I don't know if this is for me. I want these this band to come on to the agency because it'll be we were going to meet two more bands and it'll be great i'm not i don't know if it's for me but it'll be great so i said to the management company and the or the agency at this time i said to them i go we fly to mexico i'll meet with three clients you come with me we'll ask them if they go for it then we do it if they don't do it then we blow it out okay so I have three meetings i'm going to them i'm trying to screw this up i'm saying okay guys and I'm doing it in English and Spanish. So I'm saying, okay, you are going to be contracted to work with me. I am going to take 10% of everything you get. And in exchange, I'm just going to try my best. And they all said, yes. I'm like, God damn it. That's not what I want to do. <laughs> fuck, I fucked this up. Okay. So I'm still thinking about it when I get back. And no shit. Two days after I get back, the company I was working for, messed around on my expenses on a $150 expense report. And I just said, well, that's the sign. If anything, that's the sign. So I just got up, grabbed my backpack, left, went to the agency the next day, didn't even discuss salary. I just rolled in and just started on it. And I've been an agent for 18 years and I love it. It's exciting. And I've always thought about the reverse engineering aspect that got me into doing it, which is, Oh, you don't like it? You don't like that part of the business? Well, then build a better goddamn mousetrap. 
Yeah. And you'll figure it out. And if you learn the mistakes and you don't make the mistakes or you make different mistakes, how can you lose? So it's been great. What a journey. This is why I love doing this podcast. You know, every single person that I know that's at, you know, any, uh, any uh, respectable level in the industry, whatever that might mean to you, you know, someone that's really doing this uh, a day to day, like we are, um, everyone has a very unique, interesting story like yours. Every single person, you know, Tim's got a wild story. Dave's is bonkers. Matt's is bonkers. Everyone is just very experienced and, and they come from very diverse backgrounds. Let me back up a little bit. Why was the idea of being an agent a bad thing to you? What about it turned you off? I think it was falling prey to a traditional mindset of eater versus eaten. Meaning the idea when you are in business that your responsibility is to do a better job than the other side. When one is negotiating and one is negotiating from a standpoint of less leverage, when one is negotiating from a point of paucity, when they don't have as much as the other party does, that tends to create a mindset in which the talent buyer or the promoter must defeat the agent. They must break the agent. They must get as good a possible deal and not concern themselves with what the agent wants. They are only speaking their own language. When I was an independent promoter in Orange County, I had very little leverage. I was in a small market. I was in a market that was considered an afterthought. I did not work for a corporation. I had my money in my bank and I would Yet when I was working as a bellman, I would make a lot of cash and I would store it and put it in a shoebox and I would take it to the bank and save it up. And I would save that money and send it out as deposits for shows. I was not coming from an area of strength. I was coming from an area of please come and play in Orange County. Please come here. My perception at that time were that the agents that I were dealing with, they were all knowing they were omniscient because they would not work with me. They had bigger fish to fry. They had more places for their artists to play. My personal perspective based upon my experience was that I was always striking out. As I created more shows, I realized that I had more juice. I realized that I had a greater ability to create events. I started seeing what my worth was. As that occurred, I started be having a better relationship with agents because I started thinking about what could I bring to the table that could make for a group success? How could I create a synergy? Then uh, after I became an agent, I started learning as an agent what I wanted to see from buyers. I started trying to figure out what do buyers want? How can I sell more efficiently to buyers from the perspective of an agent? How can I sell to my artists and to my promoters that there is an upside for everybody to create a symbiotic scenario, for everybody to win, to create a one plus one equals three? And I think that only comes over time. The more experience I have, the more I realize 
it's really about creating something, whether it's a scene, whether it's an artist, whether it's a concept that will last for decades, creating a, a religion out of the clients that you work with, growing your congregation and figuring out how to keep building, how to keep progressing forward. And I think it's very difficult to do that if you haven't actualized. And if you're just a young guy who's in Anaheim and who's working at the Quality Hotel and you're taking phone calls from Revan Horton Heat and Green Day while you're working at your job carrying bags around, I think it's easy to have a chip on your shoulder versus the more you learn, the more you realize, oh, an agent is really kind of the same as a manager and it's kind of the same as the, the promoter. You're facilitating. You're facilitating, but you're representing this side of the fence versus that side of the fence. That's very interesting that you talk about this because it was something I have written down. I wrote down synergy because I wanted to talk to you about that. Can you kind of expand on the synergy in your job in the music industry? Um, you know, and, and I'll add something, a personal note to this, that tra traveling teaches you a lot of lessons. You've traveled a lot. I've traveled a lot. When you travel... One of the things you start noticing, especially internationally, is that at, though the world is very different, and it is, it's also very similar. And most human beings want similar things. You want a roof over your head. You want safety for your friends and family. You want to make a little bit of money. You want something for the future. Something I've noticed when I like, so I mean, m most of my job is protecting my producer's best interests, right? I mean, I'm, I'm there to speak on their behalf, defend their value, negotiate rates for them. And if my if I go into it pretending to be Ari Gold from fucking Entourage and all I do is try to get as much money as possible for this record, I am not doing my clients a service. I am not doing the industry a service. That is not the point of all of this. And, it, and like you said, a young man with a chip on his shoulder may think that that's the point of all of this is to go in there and just punch people and get get as much as you can right now, man. I think that's I think that's missing a big key point to this that, like you said, agents are kind of managers and managers are kind of agents and and we're all very we we pretend we have different titles and hats, but in reality we're all just kind of doing the same thing. Can you, can you kind of expand on that for a little bit, your version of it? Yeah, I definitely can. From, from the concept of synergy, how I tend to look at it in regards to my work is I tend to focus as much as possible on the, the similarities and the dissonances between all of the different artists that I deal with, meaning I keep track of when I believe that there are paradigms that are the same within one genre, within the ska genre, versus the Latin rock genre, versus the Latin ska genre, versus the Asian ska genre. I look at the dissonances between, say, New Japan Pro Wrestling and Hatsune Miku and how that's different from World of Dance and how the things all come together. I find that learning these lessons, learning these ideas, these nuances are the things that really keep me excited about my job. And there is, that's pretty much the main reason why my clients work with me, because I believe that they feel my understanding of these different cultures, my understanding of all of these mechanics makes the client better 
informed, and they get to make better decisions. I tend to break my day up in three ways, my working day. The first of which I focus on my existing clients and what they're doing and what they want to do. The second of which I focus on the team and, you know, what do we need? What does Beth need? What does Dave need? What does Matt need? What can I do to help uh, our different departments? Where are we growing? Where are we, where do we think we're going to grow? Are there any areas in which we should be growing? And the third part is looking at new clients and trying to figure out what's out there, trying to understand the way the world is and really expanding our gospel. So we talked earlier about religion, how I tend to think of the artists as each artist being their own religion, each band being their own religion. The Sakras are their own religion. Hatsune Miku is her own religion. Tokyo Sky Paradise is another one religion. But really also, Sound Talent Group is its own religion. And our responsibility, my responsibility, is to find new artists that are out there, new concepts, and start learning about what excites me. And it's not necessarily that it's going to be something that I want to sign. Maybe it's already signed with another uh, agent. But most importantly, I want to learn about new music. I want to be excited about it because I want to transmit this information to, to my clients. Sometimes synergy relates to having a bunch of different artists work on the same concept and putting together things. Sometimes it has to do with making sure people on my team are informed. I mean, uh, an example is I have a newsletter that I put out every Friday and I send it to all of my managers and I send it to my clients. And what it really is, is just me talking about, you know, what's going on in our business, what's going to be affecting things the next couple of weeks, what's going to be happening with COVID, what's going to be happening with streaming, what's going to be happening with NFTs, what's going to be happening with traveling, because I want to be in touch with everybody that we're doing. But sometimes it's, it's not feasible for me to have phone calls with everybody. So I try to educate, I try to teach them where things are going to be going, where I think things are going to be going. And I find that a lot of the clients synergize with me, that they start sending articles to me, they start talking about things with me and they start saying, hey, this is something that we can share. This is something we can work together. I, I try not to think about signposts like I'm in the entertainment industry. I've been doing this for so many years. It's it's a trip to look at my LinkedIn that I did an hour before the call because I don't I don't think of myself as an industry veteran. I mean, I think of myself as a guy who, you know, I've been a paid speaker at schools and universities and I've testified as an expert witness and stuff. But when you start thinking about yourself and your experience and that concept I think it takes away from the here and now. It takes away from what you can do right now to make this situation different. How can you continue to see what your clients are doing, what venues are doing, what promoters are doing, what concert series are doing in a new lens with the understanding that this is a new concept and how does this relate to me? And it's a pretty easy job in terms of like, you know, I don't have to swing a shovel. I don't have to uh, dig a pickaxe. I don't have to do any of that kind of stuff, but it is tremendously intellectually taxing. And I've learned either you better love what you do and you better understand what you do and why it's important or don't do it. Don't do it at all. I agree. I find that at the end of the day, my voice is typically 
hoarse and my throat hurts. I talk all day on the phone and mm -hmm. you're right. I'm not, I'm also not swinging a shovel, but I am exhausted by the end of the day. My brain hurts. I'm putting out fires all day long, but I'm not putting out physical fires. By the way, I was a firefighter in EMT for three years. So I, wow. I know what that's like. And I still have buds that do that full time. Those guys work their asses off. Um, we're not doing that. Something that you said that I've, I found pretty profound is maybe one of the best pieces of advice for people listening. If you're doing anything, you're, you're starting a restaurant, you want to be an entrepreneur, you want to play in a band, you want to do what we do. You said something about, and I'll kind of paraphrase it, I think what you're getting at is to not, you know, you don't look at road signs. You don't try to obsess over the title, that name tag on your shirt. Hi, I am John Pantel. I am a music agent. I book bands for a living. That's very limiting. And I think it's a mistake that a lot of people make, myself included. We get wrapped up in this career identity. And it's okay to do that. But remember that you are a, a holistic being. <laughs> You're a human being with a lot of experience and a lot of talent. And you can give a lot in many, many different ways. And if you want to be a successful agent, restaurant owner, lawyer, whatever it is, then try to remember that, that all those experiences that you have and all that diversity that you bring to the table is only a strength. I agree. I think it's imperative for each of us to figure out how to kill our ego. It is one of the most difficult things to do. I remember Kevin Morrow, who is a legend in the business and who hired me at House of Blues, and he said that there are three things that will kill you in this business, drugs, alcohol, and ego. And he said that the business is full of people who have fallen by the wayside based on those three aspects. God, is that true? It's those three. If you can figure out how to slay these demons, if you can figure out how to not be one of the five to 10% of people within your industry that blow it, because of one of those three things. If you can figure out how to learn from the top 10% of your business and how you can learn from the bottom 10% of your business and you can stay within the 80% of your business, within the 80% of agents and know every agent that you can and know all the buyers you can and know all the musicians you can and know all the production people you can and all the lawyers that you can and learn as much as you can and hope to become in the top 10% of your business, but just avoid like hell the bottom 10%, those who did not kill their ego, those who did not figure out who they wanted to be. Once you can do that, then the rest of it is set. I mean, um, Operation Ivy said it best. All I know is I don't know nothing. Yeah. I spend a lot of every day from the mental standpoint that I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. I use chart metric like crazy because I don't know different types of music. If I mean, I listen to a lot of different kinds of music, but if I'm basing my decisions on being an agent, on figuring out the best business practices for a particular genre and how it's going to grow and where it's going to go and trying to soothsay in the future, the last thing I want to do is to have my own musical input in regards to this thing. Like I'm a, I'm a ska musician who listens to, you know, Miles Davis and the Minutemen. Yeah. I don't necessarily think that I have any great idea about what music should be, but 
if I'm a chart metric and I'm looking at a band's how many people they have on Reddit, how many people they have on Twitch, how many people they have on Spotify, how many people they have in this area and that area, it gives me an idea as to what regular people think. I am not regular. I am mutated from all of this work that I've done in the entertainment industry, whether whatever we call what I do, music industry, entertainment industry, crowd industry, I don't know. I know this. I have blinders on my head like a, like a horse in the Kentucky Derby, and I can only see certain things, and that's okay because I know that I'm dumb. I know that I'm stupid. I know that I need to learn, that I need to read. I walk into meetings, and I think sometimes either I'm the second dumbest person in the room or I'm the second smartest person, and that comes from two areas. One, I always want to listen actively and figure out what people are doing. I don't want to tune out. I don't want to be a bad agent. I've seen too many agents in my life who are just phoning it in and who don't care. I was on the receiving end of that when I was a buyer and I would talk to agents who'd be asleep. I never want to be asleep. I always want to be an active listener, but more importantly, I want to learn. I want to find who's the dumbest person in this room. Who's the smartest person in this room. What can I learn out of this? Why am I doing this? How do I not waste time? A hundred years from now, all of us are going to be dead. All of us are going to be dead. No one's going to know about, you know, years from now, no one's going to know about who the who the Anaheim Angels are. We're not, no one's going to know about any of this type of stuff. We are in this amazing moment right now that I get to share with you, that I get to share with the people at STG, that I get to share with my clients, that I get to share with my family, that I get to share with promoters. And this is an amazing time. And the biggest examples of this is COVID. We had an event, a global event that has never happened in society. We had an event where every country, every place slowed down. Everyone did the same thing. Everyone stopped and tried to figure out how to handle this particular crisis. And you're right, it's probably not gonna be the last thing, but this was a unique moment in our time. And I'm very, very proud to be at a company that actively looked at the situation instead of laying everybody off, instead of telling everybody, you know what, don't come into the office, we'll just wait and see what happens. And I know a lot of people who were in that boat. We did not do that. We created, we built, we implemented our tools that we had and we found jobs for our artists, we found jobs for our friends, we found podcasts, we found live streams, we worked our asses off. And that happened because we were in an amazing time and I was surrounded by a group of people who felt that they didn't know what they were doing, but they were gonna fight like hell to figure out a solution. And that's what happened. And that's, that's the best explanation I can think of as far as synergy. This business is based upon Decades-long relationships in which people make decisions on who they're going to call, what they're going to do, and how they're going to spend their time based upon finding other individuals that they feel can adapt and evolve in a way that is productive. Yeah. And that is the biggest thing that we can do, adapt and evolve in a way in which we feel it's productive. And once we capture that, then we are able to actualize upon that. We were able to explain to others why this adaptation, why this evolution 
is more effective and why this could benefit you. And if you do that long enough, then you're going to find great bands and you're going to find great clients and you're going to find great intellectual properties and you're going to end up doing all right. And then one day you're going to die. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That is just a fact of life. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm happy to say that this episode is brought to you by DistroKid. DistroKid is a service that musicians use to put music into online stores and streaming services. These include iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, even TikTok, and many, many more. With DistroKid, you can quickly and easily distribute your music for as little as $19.99 a year. And check this out. You keep 100% of your earnings, and you get unlimited uploads for one yearly fee. And to make things even easier, you can split the earnings between you and your bandmates. So when that pesky little bass player of yours gives you a hard time about not giving him his share, tell him to relax and say, DistroKid's got this. So do yourself a favor and get started today. Go to distrokid.com forward slash VIP forward slash stateside and get 7% off your first year's membership. Something that I, I kind of distilled out of what you just said, somebody distilled out of what you just said was that, you know, you it's it's imperative that you go find your tribe, that you go find your group of people that ha- that share the same values as you, that want the same things, that that also have competing, uh, but also have competing interests and values and, and people that can have a good parallel to what you're doing and make it stronger. And the only way to do that for those listening and they're like, well, I'm just, I just can't find those people and I, I don't know who to find to, to start a business with. You have to network. You just have to. And don't think of it as like schmoozy business card handing 90 style networking. Just do what you and I are doing. Just ask someone to talk. Just start a podcast. It's a, it's a really, really clever way to get to know people. I've gotten to know a ton of people and networked with a ton of people because we just sit here and talk for an hour. Now you know me, I know you. Now we're buds. It's just that easy. And because I did that with so many people for so long, I had great opportunities come my way, like Mr. Shapiro giving me a call one day, running this crazy idea by me. Hey, do you want to go into business together? I had never thought of it. I had never even considered that. And it just kind of fell into my lap because of my willingness to to stay open and and learn from others it's imperative yeah i i agree that it, it's the only way to go uh when i left uh agency for performing arts i worked there for nine years and was a vice president there in the music department when i left i joined sound talent group but i also started getting my masters I started getting it at Cal State Fullerton through a friend of mine. I was just going to ask you about your master's. What did you actually go to school for? My friend, Dr. Rashidi, he was the editor-in-chief of uh, some uh, magazine called Mean Street, which was an indie punk rock magazine that was based in Riverside. And when I was a concert promoter, uh, I would pay him and to run ads in the publication. We've always stayed in touch, and I've spoken at Cal State Fullerton a number of times and he's always been really great and he said why don't you think about you know doing the master's program we could do it at night 
And I bet you'll actually be a better agent because of it. Instead of it taking time away from you, I bet it's going to make you better. Why were you doing uh, speaking events at Cal State Fullerton? How did that How did that happen? I got my bachelor's at Cal State Fullerton. And I was working on it. And I was, right, I was in my last semester before I was going to graduate. I was taking three classes. And I got hired by House of Blues. And I went to all three of my teachers and I said, hey, I love going to class here. I'd love to get my major in communication, but I'm going to go work in the industry and I'm in a communications major and this is going to be running House of Blues Los Angeles. It's a nightclub in Los Angeles. And so I need to get out of school and I don't want to get out of school and I'd love to finish, but I can't. So all three of the teachers were like, oh, well, that's interesting. What what shows you have coming up? Oh, 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 okay. Uh, yeah, I've got this band and this band and this band. Oh, I'd love to come. Aha. Uh-huh. Would you? So one teacher, one teacher let me out with a three-page essay and guest tickets to Junior Walker and the all <laughs> Another teacher wanted to go to Eric Clapton, and then they let me out. All I had to do was finish my final, but they told me, you know, whatever you do score you score you're gonna pass you either way and then a third teacher i think wanted to go to james brown or something like that so i got all of my teachers to set me up and i put them all on guest lists i missed my graduation because i was touring i was playing trombone in a band called dance hall crashers it was a ska band and uh we were out on tour in hawaii and i missed my graduations amazing my parents didn't think i graduated amazing and then the you know the diploma came in the mail and they're like oh my god that's great so I just went along and did my thing. And then somewhere like 15 years into the business, uh, this guy, Rashidi, he started hitting me up and he started going, Hey, I know, uh, I know what you did here. I know you really didn't, you really didn't graduate. I know what you did. I, I know I, you, I know, look, I don't have a problem with what you did, but you need to give back to your school. Uh- so, <laughs> so we have something called Com week. And you're going to be a speaker every year. And you're going to talk to these kids every year because you made it. You're in the entertainment industry, but you're from Cal State Fullerton. That doesn't happen that often. Right. So you need to tell these kids what's up because all these kids still today, they have a chip on their shoulder. They think that the entertainment industry is something that's untenable. It's something that's unreachable. Yeah. It's something that they're never going to find. Uh, so I start, especially deep in the OC. Right. I mean, you know, a lot of those Orange County kids, they, they got a chip on their shoulder about LA right. and the industry. And yeah, they're never going to find it. It's never going to occur. It's never going to happen. So I would speak at the school once a year and I would tell these kids exactly how to get a job, exactly what to do, exactly how to do it and, and start to build out. And after a while, I started, you know, looking forward to it. I'm like, this is great. Because this helps me put my ideas together and I start learning about new kids and I started thinking about what I could learn from them. I don't know how to do certain technical things, social media things that these kids know how to do. And I started going, you know what? I don't want to be the, the guy who goes to Coachella and hates two thirds of it because they don't know what it is. I don't want to be the old man who yells at the cloud. I want to continually be amazed by what's going on in the business, by what's going on in the world, even if it's not my client. I want to understand it. I want to have a fresh perspective. So I go back and I get my master's because I want to do that. I want to learn a lot about kids. I want to learn what the next generation is going to be doing. What I found out was 
All of them know how to do every social media portal except LinkedIn. LinkedIn is the one that scares them the most. And it scares them the most because on almost every other social media platform, they are at an advantage. On Vine, they are young. On Twitter, they are young. On Facebook, they are young. They're talking, they're spending a lot of time talking with other people in their age, compatriots, because they have that time. You and I, we do not have that much time. We have jobs, we have mortgages, we have to do certain things. So we have less time to do that. But I notice when they don't have LinkedIn. Why? Because LinkedIn scares the hell out of them and becomes a situation in which experience is the most important thing. Right. So I started learning about that, why these kids don't like that. And it, and it becomes a thing like they're afraid of experience and they've always bought into the idea that the entertainment industry is something that's mythical on the hill like the city of oz rather what it is is a description of somebody's figuring out how to make money out of art and if you look at it from a very germinal standpoint you can find oh okay there are ways to do this i can do this on a smaller level and then it'll go to a bigger level and then it'll go to a bigger level. And then more people will find about out about me and what I do. More people will find out about sound talent group. More people will find out about my clients and the congregation will grow and the tent will grow mm-hmm. and the religion will grow. And we will find other congregations to be a part of and put together collaborations and create a larger entity. What I learned was the kids, uh, a lot of students there feel that the internet era has created a decentralized business in which it is difficult to create impact. However, it just takes very little to tweak that into the idea that the entertainment industry is actually a tabula rasa in which you can create your own things you can create your own music i mean look at look at what, how bright eyes started out they started out by just putting their music online and just getting it out there tapes that they made in their in the, the basement of their house and it just started growing yeah and people finding out about it and the idea of intellectual property being able to to transmit this and to share this and to create this and to make notes upon this that is tremendously freeing and it's a tool that a lot of people didn't have before oh, like, yeah. 1998, 1999 is when everyone started really getting into the internet. So from that perspective, you start learning that kids want to find communities and it's very easy to wish you'd be part of somebody else's community. It's much more difficult to try to create your own community. It is. And that's what I talk to a lot of students about. Like, you've got to create your own community. You want to get hired. You want to get hired by other companies. The biggest thing you need to do is to show worth. And the worth is not about I will get paid as little as possible. That's not the important worth. The important worth is in your head. The important worth is if you can understand the company that you want to work for, if you can build great questions out of it, if you can think alongside how they think, if you can research them, if you can study them, if you can figure out what they want to do, and more importantly, if you can understand the 
things that you can bring to the table in relation to what their objective yes, is. Yes. That's the entire game. Yeah, it's a it's a mistake that young people make that you know like uh, you know I'll, I'll be candid one of the people that works at stateside they're a young person and they clearly have their own pursuits and interests and focuses in life and i'm under no illusion that they'll be at stateside forever but i will honor this person and say that they have made it very clear that they want to do everything they possibly can to make stateside better while they're here and they are showing so much value in that way that you know, I'm their cheerleader. I'm hoping that they go on to do bigger and, and better things down the road because mm-hmm. while they're here, they're just killing it. So yeah, that's a, a, a note I want to say on that. Let's start kind of wrapping this thing up here. I, I have a couple more questions sure. that I was curious what you thought. Okay. I am also originally from Orange County. I was born in, right. in Hogue Hospital out in Newport Beach. Oh, my wife works at uh, my wife works at UCI and Chalk. Oh, nice. It's it's funny to me how many people I know that were born in Hogue Hospital. Like just right, so many people. The shiny building in the hill. Yeah, yeah. I you know I'll be. I didn't live in Newport very long. It. I was a little baby. We lived in San Juan Capistrano for a handful of years, kind of all like the Costa Mesa area. Um, my dad worked at Disneyland multiple times growing up. So that's where my, as you can see, this, I don't know if you can see all the shit on the wall. It's all Disneyland posters and got a nice. big Mickey watch right here. I got a Mickey Mouse tattoo. I'm like a fanatic for Disneyland. Oh, you're deep. You're I'm deep. deep. I'm a big dork, big Disney adult dork. Um, but yeah, so I have a love for Southern California that is hard to explain to people. I, I'm i pursuing a split living situation, very similar to Mr. Shapiro. You know, he lives in SoCal and then Alaska. That's what my wife and I are, are looking to do, get a place down in Southern California, then also live up here in Oregon. Um, and like you, I, we have a shared interest of loving the Angels, the baseball team down there. Can you kind of... true. Yeah, can you kind of elaborate on... Your experience growing up in Orange County, Southern California in general, what you love about it, what you've learned from it, and maybe some of the things that you don't like about it. And then also a follow-up question, why do the Angels suck so much and will we ever get better? (laughs) In the same fashion that COVID is probably only going to happen once in our lifetimes, and this is a moment in which all of us need to recalibrate who we are what we are, what we want the world to be. The 2002 Angels World Series will only happen once. They are only going to be the world champions once. That's okay. That is okay. Because in our lifetimes, there are signposts that we must heed. There are scenarios in which we must acknowledge and we must learn from. And that happened. We won the World Series in 2002. That probably will never happen again. But it's very frustrating. I I love baseball. I am a baseball fanatic. I, I got a little old timey baseball player tattoo. It's that's my nice. sport. That's my game. I defend it to the end of time. Right. Uh, you know, fuck all those people who say it's boring. It is boring, but that's why I love it. Anyway, um, it's just so frustrating to me that we. We have arguably two of the best baseball players in history. Right. Mike Trout being definitely one of them. And that's yeah. the frustrating thing about and, baseball. Uh, it doesn't matter. It, you can have one of the best athletes of all time on your team, and it, it's not like basketball. It's not like football. One guy can't just carry the team for you. True. 
I don't know what happened with this 14-game losing streak. I think it yeah. is very closely related to the Harry Sidhu, uh potential indictment and the stadium deal being shut down. Yeah. We're really talking inside baseball for this kind of discussion. For those of you who don't know, the Angels are a baseball team. They're based in Anaheim. Anaheim has a very incestuous relationship within the city boundaries. It's very frustrating because they, they were called originally the Los Angeles Angels. They were originally the Los Angeles Angels. That's right. Then the California Angels. Is that in order? California Angels. And then, then, the, then the Anaheim Angels. Then Anaheim. And then the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. Then the Los Angeles Angels. It's maddening. And if you live in Anaheim or anywhere in Orange County and you support that team, it's wild that they're called the Los Angeles Angels. There's nothing about them that's Los Angeles. Maybe I'm wrong. The fact that the team and the fans have all accepted that these people from Anaheim call themselves Los Angeles-based with a straight face is indicative of the temerity and the strength of the citizens of Orange County. Think about this. Interesting. The people in Orange County are very close to being in one of the most amazing ecosystems there is in the world, Los Angeles. Los Angeles is always going to be the big brother shining on the hill, of course. regardless of what their homeless situation is. Of course, downtown, right. Regardless of what they have. They are always going to be the prima facie. It's where dreams, always going dreams to be come the true main there. Thing. Yep. They're always going to be the second class citizen. But that's okay because my job is to succeed. The people around me, our job is to succeed. The people that I know in this city, they all want to succeed. So if we're going to be called something else, but it's successful for us, I don't, I don't think there's a problem. I, I think it's ingenious. Before Artie called the team the Los Angeles Angels, when he was forced to buy the thing with the city of Anaheim to call it the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, the team was making 40 to $45 million a year in television. The team is now making $120 million a year in television. They own their own radio. They have a partnership with their television uh, stations. They've created their own entity. Is the argument be because they're now part of the LA market? Because they've, cons they've titled themselves as part of the Los Angeles market. And they can make an argument that Southern California is their media market, which it is. Okay, let's... We don't want to bore. We don't want to bore the audience too much with the Angels talk. But, but <laughs> I, I, let, let me ask you one question about the Angels because I think this kind of it can tie into a lot of things we spoke about: holding responsibility to people and remembering that we're a team. You know, there's kind of some silly analogies here, but it's all true. Baseball right. is one of the best life lessons there is. You know, the defense. It's the only sport where the defense has the ball. There is no clock. It's a wild game. I, I encourage people to get more into it. You can learn a lot from the game of baseball, and you can learn a lot from a team like the Angels. Do Do you support Joe Madden being fired? No. Is my direct question to you? No, I do not. I do not. Okay. Uh, Good for you because I, I don't I either. Think there's a lot of. I think there's a lot of information that's going to come out later. I think Joe Madden is is a great guy, and I think 
that he's done a fantastic job coaching. I, I saw what he did with the Rays. Uh, and I the saw Cubs. What, he, what, what he's done throughout his career and what he did with the Cubs. Yeah. And I think he's great. Uh, I think that there's something bigger that happened. Why can't the team pull it together? Because it, it's the team's fault. You, you don't lose 14 games because of a manager. It's a, t- it's a team's fault, yeah. But it, also, he probably realized, and the team probably realized, that he's in the third year of a three-year deal. He's doing great, and the, the team isn't coming to him with a statement saying, you know, let's, let's sign you up for some more years. Let's bring you in. You're doing great. We're 10 games above 500. We're having the best start that we've ever had at this point in the season. We've got so many players that are healthy. I was so hopeful. This is really fantastic. Why don't we get you an extension? And they didn't do that. They didn't do it. They, they, they didn't. I don't think they wanted him there. I, I, I mean, we know the GM guy. And... I don't think they, they wanted them prior to this thing. I think I think something happened that we don't know about having to do with the Harry Sidhu scenario and the corruption. I think there's a lot of stuff that's going to come out. It's a drag. It is a drag. As far as Orange County people, I like being in Orange County because I think it's an incubator for hustle. Yeah. It's an incubator for people who want to do better and who want to figure themselves out at their own pace and have their own way. I haven't had a client tell me I need to live in LA. I haven't missed out because I can, from here, I can drive there. I can oh, go yeah. back and forth. And it doesn't matter. It, if you have great ideas, if you're a great communicator, if you're astute, it doesn't matter. The reason why I went and got my master's is because I knew that the future of communication is not about being at some place all the time. It is about saying the right things. It is about understanding the right things. It is about being able to synergize things within the business. And if you can do that effectively, the world is your oyster. Yes. And I started realizing being in Orange County is actually better because this allows me to have a larger space where I can cultivate the ideas that I want to do. And I'm around my friends and I'm around my family and I can crush. It's been great. You're next door to LA. You're, you're a couple hours down to San Diego where sound talent is. You're at all the hubs. John Wayne flies everywhere. I mean, that, that airport is a great yeah. Santa Ana airport. It's awesome. You're next to the stadium. There's a lot of venues in Orange County now. Oh, ton. I mean, Chain Reaction is like, you know, a fucking legendary punk rock venue, mm-hmm. hardcore venue. And that's been around for, I, I don't know how long, but early 2000s something like that yep yeah and there's the observatory observatory yeah there's house of blues there's you know la santa there's a lot of different places to go there's a lot of different things and i think the idea that orange county is an other oh it's crazy is gone. It, it, i think it's gone no i i i've i mean i just got done telling you that we're we're looking at places down in California to kind of do a split living thing. And our top, it's either Orange County or it's Long Beach. That Those are the two places that I, I would consider living part-time. Long Beach, I like the idea of because you're, you're literally in the middle of Los Angeles and Orange County. I'm 20, 25 minutes to Disneyland, 35, 40 minutes to LA. You know, I can go up and down the coast, go to Santa Monica. And, you know, I, I ride motorcycles too. So I'm, I'm really into riding Harley and, that's clearly a thing for that. But yeah, I mean, I, 
Oh yeah, I was just curious what you thought of Orange County and Southern California. I all of the negative things I'm finding exist here too. The homeless problem, the traffic, the whatever. And at least in Orange County, it's sunny. <laughs> <laughs> I would show you outside. It's miserable. It's just it's just a soupy gray mess here all the time. I think we can extrapolate on the concept and you can not only refer to it as like Anaheim, but you could say what your life is. Each of us, each of us have lives that have small problems in it. Each of us have lives that have difficult scenarios. Just shit, we all went through COVID. How many people died? How many people were impacted? How many careers went up and down? How many times were we at Sound Talent Group sitting there going, oh man, is money gonna keep coming in? How are we gonna figure ourselves out? But what happens is people get tough. People figure things out. The people start thinking about, okay, what are the gains that we have? What are the advantages to every situation that we have? How can we make things better? And it relates to a lot of stuff. Okay, one of our bands didn't get a festival. Okay, how do we get to that festival next year? How do we get other things going on? Yeah. How do we build? How do we create? How do we pick ourselves up? How do we grow our religion? And you're always going to have downsides wherever you live. You're always going to have downsides wherever you do. But what it's really about, what really makes it successful, is actualizing and figure out where you want to go. And by creating that concept, then eventually you get there. If you know where you want to be and you know what you want to do, then the rest is just putting one foot in the other. It's true. And I think... And that's banana boy. Yeah, no, I, I mean, you know, growing up in Orange County, I think we'll do that. I think it's it's something I like about Portland, Oregon, too. Portland is mm-hmm. a, a... It's a big town. It's a small city or a big town, depending on how you look at it. And it's in between... Seattle and San Francisco. So it's kind of this like little brother, little cousin, you know, the redhead stepchild kind of thing. Um, and something about the weather here makes you tough. It makes you resilient when it run rains eight months out of the year that it fucks with you, man. It's, it's more than people think. When I was, when I was 26, I got flown up to Portland for a job interview. They wanted me to run. It was a chain of nightclubs. I think there were three nightclubs up there. Mm. I flew up for the weekend, ran the whole time. I couldn't do it. I was like, oh, Christ. And that is ridiculous now that I think about it. I'm like, why why did you move because of the weather? It's just like the dumbest thing in the world. Maybe it would have been a lot of fun there. I don't know. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's it's so funny because I I find myself complaining about the weather all the time here. And it's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's something... That only happened in in getting older. When I was younger, I wore it like a badge of honor that it was so crummy here. You know, like, <laughs> well, well, that's what we do here, You're man. The yeah, You're the right. You're gonna build it up. It makes you a little more emo, and you just put on a hoodie all year and play in a band and live inside. Well, look, man, isn't isn't that every company's every successful company's move when they have their board meeting or they have their company meetings where they all go to Ohio or they go to a certain city and they come from the perspective of our competitors are eating our lunch we got to get better we got to get harder we got uh, we're going to blow it we're, we're screwing everything up we got to move forward that's what motivates everybody yeah. what's the biggest motivator if you're in a group of people and someone's threatening your guys' livelihood, someone's going to take our lunch. Yeah. No, that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. No. Nope. Screw that. And you build forward. 
Yeah, 100%. I think that's been kind of a, a through line through this podcast is, you know, adversity and being being in Orange County or being in Portland or being <laughs> being the smaller agency to the big three-letter agencies, that is, that's an advantage to you. And take it and win. Um, as, as we kind of wrap up here, my man, my last question, and I think this is like a direct you know, you probably get asked this all the time, but to, you know, to the audience listening, we have a lot of people that are playing in bands. A lot of people that are starting out that are trying to make it. What, what is your recommendation for a band wanting to get an agent? Become your own agent, build your own mousetrap, come from it, from the perspective of you are the agent and you need to figure out how to get booked. Start figuring out targets, start figuring out why people should pay attention to you as an artist, why they should pay attention to your band. Start paying attention to how other people find you as an artist. Pay attention to your social metrics. Pay attention to the amount of people who follow you on Twitch. Pay attention to the amount of people who follow you on Spotify. Who are your fans? Why are they your fans? What are they doing? Start thinking of yourself as being in a business as well as being in a show. And it's very similar to, I, I guess it's a Buddhist phrase. When the student's ready, the teacher will appear. There's an old saying. There's an old saying that when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And it is your job to prepare for that teacher. It is your job as an artist to understand what you want out of an agent, what you want as far as people paying attention to you, what is important to you. Know the right questions to ask. I want to have 50% more fans on Spotify five months from now than I do now. I want to have three times as many fans on Twitter and three times as many fans on Instagram as I did one year ago. And how do I do that? How do I compartmentalize my art and put it in a scenario in which maybe it's not commerce, but it's a product for people to think, the people to watch, people to understand. How do I sell myself? How do I transmit? Thinking about signing a group, that's the biggest thing I look at. Where are these guys at as far as their growth? Yeah. What do they understand? How do they want to get bigger? Are they realistic? And then am I in a situation where I can help them? Am I in a situation where I can make them better? They don't necessarily need to have a manager, but do they have the potential to learn? Do they have the potential to doing things? It's great to have an agent because why wouldn't you want somebody working with you on your behalf for free? If you're not getting paid anything and the person has to do all this work, but they're getting paid a percentage of what you get, and you're not getting anything. Why wouldn't you want that? Yeah, that's great. You know what else I would want? I would want to have an entity that would place all of our music on film and television. That's great. But the reality is, over time, I built a list and I have a list of people who submit music to film and TV and I submit my artists to that. And all that's the best I can do. I can't force that into it. I can't force the industry to love this song or that song. What I can do is work with the people who I believe have the best chance at it. And I would say to people who are looking for an agent is start to figure out what they believe an agent does and what they can do it is that their agent is in their head and then try to do that themselves. I've got a lot of bands who are like looking for managers, looking for managers, looking for managers. And then I just explain them, okay, what is that? What do you think a manager does? Right. 
and through reverse engineering, they start realizing they can do this themselves. 100%. And it's better. Yeah. And it's better than them doing that until they get to a certain point. When they get to a certain point where there's a lot of money coming in, then it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. This is great. We can have these people on. But the last thing you want is a bad agent. The last thing you want is a bad manager. That's what you don't it, want. It's I so think true. a lot of people who want agents, if they were stuck with a bad agent, they would not want agents very quickly. No, most of the time, bands that want agents or managers or producers that want managers, in my case, mixed engineers, they what they're really saying is they want success. They want their thing to grow. And I, yeah. I understand that. It's, it's a normal... Uh, impulse to have. But something you said a few times, and I use this term all the time, is reverse engineering. And that's something that bands or entrepreneurs, or again, the restaurant owner, the, the person going in a lot, whatever it is you're doing, try to reverse engineer people that you want to emulate. You know, have mentors, look up mm-hmm. to them. How how did the how did Rancid get so big? Well, let's talk about it. Like reverse engineer that. What did they do? And it's not all about getting the right manager and the right label. Most of the time it's it's a wild combination of luck and talent, and you have you have to be manageable. I mean that is just the fact. And, and you know I say it all the time, but especially with producers, not all producers fucking need managers. Most of them are lone wolves. They got this shit on lockdown. They know what they're doing. And the only time that you really should go seek a manager is if you find that everything you you can't juggle all those all those uh, moving pieces. You can't spin all the plates anymore. There's just too much coming in. There's too many demands for your band or for your production career, whatever it is. So right. yeah, I, I think that's great advice. That's that's realistic advice. Instead of, hey, here's a strategy to email so-and-so at this agency and yeah. here's how you can get you know, good with this agent. It, it just, it's not helpful advice. And unfortunately, I hear it all the time. Here's, here are two, two concrete things that I've used in order to get the best out of people. One is if a band asks me to work with them, they send me off, I go, okay, send me over your one sheet. It's usually like exhaustive in terms of adjectives and everybody's bending over backwards trying to find the most amazing string of adjectives. I listened to a podcast from Scott Boris, the best agent probably in sports. And he spends an insane amount of money on statistical work and making sure that his clients know that he knows what they do every night. Like he has teams of people who overnight go to every one of his players and put out their stats. He's always presenting that. He's always getting information out. And one thing he said on a podcast, he said, I try to never use adjectives. I'm only using facts. He spends a lot of money finding people to crunch numbers so he can tell the Baltimore Orioles, when it's time to cut a deal for Brady Anderson, this is why you want Brady Anderson, because he's hit the most home runs at X time at this point. He's crucial to what you're doing, and this is why. And here's a newspaper article about it, and here's this. And he has the ability to make factual statements about a client that have no adjectives in them and that show the worth of the artist. I tell bands if they're thinking about working with me, I go, write me a one sheet and I don't want you to use any adjectives. And I want you to boil down why I should work with you, what the success is. Another thing that I do when I'm thinking about hiring people on into the company, assistants and such, 
I ask people to send me a three-page paper as to what the music industry is going to be like 18 months from now. Before I even look at a resume, before I talk to them, before I do anything, I ask them, send me a three-page paper. Write a paper. What is the music industry going to be like 18 months from now? And you would be surprised how few people write that out. You'd be amazed. It's it's some it's one of the most common things to do. I'm, I'm being very structurally honest. Put this together. Give me your thoughts. Yeah. I want to see how you think. I want to see how you write. I'll have people who are like, are you kidding? What are you talking about? So what are you asking for when you do that? Are, are you looking for a specific answer or is it more of just an exercise to see if they will do it? At first, it was an exercise to see if they would do it. At first, it was a way to separate the wheat from the chaff because I'd have a lot of people who are like, oh, oh you're working at a big agency? Well, I need to get this person yeah. into the industry. Yeah. So I think, you know, they'd be great to have a gold brick. It's my cousin. It's my brother. It's my sister. Something like that. At first, it was just to see if they would do it. Then... I want to see how they think. I want to see how they actualize. Are they just going to be a person who's going to get me coffee and just going to give me, you know, tapes and stuff like that and worry about my dry cleaning and stuff like that? Is it that kind of person? Right. Because I don't want that no. kind of person. I don't want somebody making my coffee for me. I don't want somebody doing my flights for me. I don't want somebody doing my hotels. I want somebody who can kick ass. Yep. I have left jobs because I have hired so well that the person who I hired ended up taking my job. I have taken pay cuts in order to get people that are much more junior than I am to come into a company. I am not afraid of finding somebody that is good enough that they could kick my ass. In fact, that is the goal. The goal is to find somebody so good that it's gonna be like the last act of a Wagner play and they're gonna fucking kill me. Yeah. And that's considered success. That's what I want. I yeah. want to see how people think. No so, kidding. Really? If it's a musician or somebody who wants to get in the business, try that. Put together, put together an essay thinking what the music business is going to be like 18 to 24 months from now and just start sending it blindly. Send it blindly Why not? to some people in the business. What do you have to lose? Exactly. What do you have to lose? There's not going to be a moment in which everybody goes, hey, did you know what today is? It's not Wednesday, July 15th. It's we're getting rid of everybody in the world and we want to hire you because you seem like a nice person. That day doesn't exist. You've got to bang the doors down. Wanting it isn't enough, right? You, no. you hear bands, especially bands, they say crazy shit like, well, this is like my dream and Great. I want it so bad and I, and I could... I knew this from the time I was a little kid. You're like, great, you and everyone else. That doesn't mean a goddamn thing. Who cares? Who cares? So what? Right. When I'm having conversations like that, I think I'm at fault because I'm talking to this person. Because I didn't cut I didn't cut it off immediately and I didn't go, look, I get it. And we all have crosses to bear. We all have to do our own thing. For the artist to think about themselves as the not only the creator the distributor yet think of themselves as their own establishment is difficult the most difficult client for an agent to have is themselves the most difficult client i have is me i have to figure out 
how to spend time on projects. I have to figure out if one of my artists aren't cutting the mustard, they aren't doing enough of the business, I need to figure out if this is something that I can keep working with because I want to keep progressing. I want to keep doing better. Sometimes I'm going to believe in something more than they believe in themselves. That's a reality that I've got to deal with. And I've only got 24 hours in a day. And I've got to figure out how to make my life right, how to make my family's life right, how to make my friends' lives right, how to make my clients' lives right. There's nothing that says I have to work on this act. There's nothing that says I have to work on that act. There's nothing that says that. I'm lucky enough. I've been saving my money. I just wear band t-shirts all day long. If push comes to shove and I needed to leave the business right now, I could. And the reason why is because I'm frugal and it makes sense for me to just fall in love with what I do for a living. I love what I do. It means everything to me. And because it means everything to me, I will fight like hell for it. One day, it's not going to be there. One day, I'm going to die. One day, I'm not going to be relevant to the people I work with. But until then, God damn it, the sun shines, I'm going to be out there. I'm going to be working my ass off. I'm going to be calling people every day. I'm going to be emailing things every day. And I want artists. I want bands. I want people around me who think the same fucking way. And if they don't, I don't have the fucking time. Dude, what a fucking brilliant way to end the podcast. That is some motivation. Dude, I'll, I'm going to give a clap for that little rant. That was great. Yay! We did it. Angels baseball. Yeah, man. Go Angels. Dude, this has been a blast. Where, where can people find you? I'm at john at soundtalentgroup.com. And uh, I have a newsletter that is open source, I guess. It's called Blood, Money, and Music, and uh, I'll send the link to everybody. By the way, I, I would love to to receive that said newsletter. I, I would love to. Yeah. Please. And it's it's just all about communicating and getting things out there and just creating wins. That's all we can do, and do man. As long as the lights are still on, I'm just going to keep fighting. How do I subscribe to the newsletter? Tinyletter.com slash blood, money, and music. I just put it in the chat. Great. So you can check it out. Okay, well, we'll put that in the show notes. So people can, yeah, and, uh, yeah, perfect. Hell yeah, yeah. Thank you for having me on, and thank you for allowing me to uh, proselyze and spread the good word and find new congregants to the beautiful religion of whatever the fuck has happened. Dude, I love it. This has been a blast. Um, thank you again for being on the show. And now that we're we're business partners together, we'll obviously be talking a lot. So I appreciate it. There we fucking go. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Gray Street.